This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. This is our last show on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was an investigation sponsored by the four indigenous tribes of Maine and the state government looking into the disproportionate removal of Native children from their families and communities by the child welfare system. In June, the Commission published their findings and recommendations, which are available to read online now at mainwabanaki.trc.org. We started this series last January, and we've been revisiting it throughout the year. We're going to close by taking a look at what non-Native people are doing to carry forward some of the findings of the TRC so that the conversation doesn't end. We decided to do this by visiting what's called an ally group, a group of people who participated in an ally training through the organization Maine Wabanaki Reach, and who've gone on to meet regularly. We went to Munjoy Hill to the apartment of Dan and Ashley, a young married couple. At these meetings, people talk about their own relationship with the ongoing history of oppression and genocide of Native people in this country, and about what they can do to be useful. To begin, I asked each of the five people there to explain why they joined this kind of group. For most of them, it began with learning about the history. One of the members, John, attended a presentation about the TRC a couple of years ago. The presentation hit me like a ton of bricks. It was information that I didn't know. You know, it was information that was not taught to me, and it was very hard to hear. And afterwards, I was having a very difficult time, like even communicating to the friends that I was there with after to even talk about it. And I just kind of was in shock almost, like, wow, I just can't believe this history that I didn't know. You know, I didn't even know really that there were still Native Americans in New England, you know? I mean, I grew up on cowboy movies. I was thinking of Native Americans as being out in the in the West, you know, riding across the plains. And I mean, I knew that they were here at one time, but I just never, as a young person, going through, you know, high school and everything, never, I learned what they taught me, and it wasn't this, and, you know, I never pursued it. I never asked the question at the time, well, what happened to all the, the indigenous people of this area? You know, what happened? Ashley and Dan, the couple whose house we were in, had been working through questions of privilege on their own for a while before they discovered the TRC. My name is Dan. Somebody in one of my encounters, somebody had said private property is a crime. And I was like, okay, wait, what? Like, that's just so counter to anything. Like, that somebody could even think that that was not just the way things are, you know? So there's, there's when we say, like, the dominant narrative, there's one, okay, that, like, private property, it's just, that's just the way people live. It's human nature or whatever we say about that. And so... And I've, I feel like my learning around my own relationship with power and, and the dominant narrative has been in fits and starts like that. Like somebody will say something, it'll shock me. And then I'll say, whoa, okay, what, what does that mean? And very simply what that means is, you know, at some point people showed up here and then put a fence in and said, no, this is mine and that's yours. And, but, but there was a time before that. So very practically we can see that private property at some point was created or stolen. So my name's Ashley, and um, 
I guess how we came to the TRC was um, this piece of land that my parents encouraged me and Dan to come use for growing and farming and, and that kind of thing. And I think just grappling with like the privilege of this piece of land that, you know, my parents own just what, you know, what to do with that and how we feel about that knowing what we know and wanting to start researching like what's the history of this piece of land and really like running up against a lot of roadblocks to like figuring out pre-colonial history of the land and just there being really like a really one-sided perspective of that reflected in kind of like historical societies and books and literature and it was hard to find an entry point that wasn't from the dominant culture perspective. I think like being faced with a really tangible privilege was kind of a pivotal moment where we were like, wow, that means a lot. That, um, that sort of familial generational transfer of assets, you know, in our, again, culturally dominant way of describing our environment <laughs> and whether it's land or stocks <laughs> or some way that uh, privilege is transferred generationally. It automatically ties us back to history. Crystal introduced herself next. Her connection to Native issues and child welfare is especially personal. I'm Crystal. Um, usually I have two, my two children with me at these meetings, but for the sake of quiet, I left them behind. Um, I think it's interesting to follow Dan and Ashley's story because even within having like sharing a privilege because we have so many other identities and, and because our stories are so different, the way we experience our privilege is very different. I, I think that's really interesting to remember. Like even within our group, our stories are so different. And even though we might all share this white privilege and non-native privilege, we share it differently. We relate to it really, really differently. For my whole life, indigenous rights and also child welfare have both been independently very, very deeply important to me and something I've always cared about and been in, um, affected by differently. Um, my parents both died from AIDS. So my father died when I was little. I grew up in poverty and was like homeless and didn't have access to like basic resources, education, things like this. I watched a lot of my cousins be put into the child welfare system essentially because they were too poor, you know. Um, and so I saw that there was something wrong with that system. And I also watched my father die and knew that my mom was dying too and that I would also potentially be put into that system. So it was something that I just thought a lot about as a child. And my father's heritage is also part Seneca. I'm from Pennsylvania. Um, and so he died when I was little and I wasn't really raised in that, but it was something that was always told to me that I should remember. And, you know, I always had moccasins as a child and that he brought to me when I was little. And then after he died, he had four kids with another woman and my siblings would actually like bring me moccasins as I grew um, to remind me. Um, and the other piece of it is, is that privilege and oppression is also deeply important to me because I realized you know, that even though I became this AIDS orphan and I grew up in poverty and, you know, I barely survived, you know, uh, experienced violence and homelessness and hunger um, because I had white skin, 
I essentially made it, (laughs) you know, like I did survive. And I see how that privilege really was the difference between survival and and not survival and of course like I'm a strong person and awesome but also like I have this privilege which made a huge difference and it's funny when when I went to the Winona LaDuke event that happened a few years ago there was a table outside uh with the TRC and my best friend came up to me she had already seen it I hadn't heard about the TRC yet and she was like Crystal we're gonna walk over there you're gonna see this table I just want you to be ready for it because she knew that it was going to be really a huge deal to me and as soon as I heard about it I was just like always trying to stay on top of like what's going on and is there any way to be involved. Jeffrey found his way to the TRC when he learned something new about his own family history. So I'm uh, I'm Jeffrey and past 10 or 15 years I've been trying to um, fill in the holes of my awareness about the shared history of genocide against uh, Native Americans. And about five years ago, that accelerated discovering the association of my family name with a pretty famous atrocity in colonizing history. So um, in talking about the story of my last name and how it connects to uh, historic events, I've first want to be very attentive to and say out loud my intention to be respectful and mindful of the survivors of the incident in question. So it it doesn't, any of your listeners can Google Hotchkiss for themselves and um, Indian Wars and find out that the Um, that there was an innovative um, weapon that was brought to bear in those wars. Uh, It was a breech-loaded cannon, very rapid fire, and just devastating in its effect. Um, Up until then, most of the cannon were muzzle-loaded, which takes time, and you can only fire so many cannonballs uh, in a minute. The innovation of the Hotchkiss was... The breech is the rear end of the cannon so that you could just keep feeding it and pulling the pin and feed it, pull out the pin so it made a, uh, was much more rapid fire, which means essentially you can kill more people um, per minute with it. And that's exactly what they did at Wounded Knee in 1890. What I didn't realize until five years ago was the connection of my name to it. How So this is an example of white ignorance of history, is I could go for most of my life without realizing that my family name was connected to really what was a horrendous act of uh, genocide. That pretty much hit me like a kick in the stomach when I found out about it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and triggered the phase of white guilt, which Um, we sort of denigrate, but I think it has a useful purpose. Uh, It uh, is a powerful incentive to learning more. And I remember um, a friend telling me, um, well, you you didn't do that. And I said, no, but if I, there are places in the country I could, would go that if my last name were known, it would, it would raise a traumatic feeling. So what do I do with that? So I started learning more, 
and more to the point learning how to be useful in a way that I wouldn't be seeking out native peoples and trying to expiate my white guilt with them. <laughs> right? Which is your first your first impulse is to say, Oh my God, this is awful. Um, who do I apologize to and where do I get, you know, forgiveness? Um, many of those who died at Wounded Knee were children. So I resolved that this is about the children. And so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was about all the trauma that has happened to Wabanaki children and looking for a positive way forward to heal from that trauma. So then I followed it and then just waited for, hope, hoping for an opportunity to volunteer, and that arose. And so here I am. These meetings primarily serve as a place for the group members to explore their own blind spots and their unconscious biases. I think what's really important is that when there is a call from um, somebody in the Wabanaki community for support or boots on the ground, if you want to call it that, that we don't bring our own guilt or our own issues associated with this work because we have to recognize that it's not about our own process with this. I mean, that's what we end up talking about a lot because that's what we do together. But we need to be very mindful of not bringing that into these spaces where there's a larger message that's being presented by the Wabanaki community that requires support. And so we do a lot of that work among our group. You know, we just end up talking about a lot of the things that we've experienced, about unpacking our own um, privilege and guilt and all the things that come up. An example of a recent call for support came from the organization Dawnland Environmental Defense, which represents the Penobscot Nation. There are a few cases, uh, legal cases, battles that the Penobscots in particular are engaged in right now. One is a water quality issue with the Penobscot River, and one is a, more of a territorial dispute. And so in 2012, the Attorney General at the time issued a letter to the Penobscots basically saying that the portion of the Penobscot River, that the Penobscot Reservation, the territory of the Penobscot Nation, involves only the islands and not the water of the Penobscot River. And basically it was an ultimatum. It's basically said, if you disagree with us, let's go to court. And uh, so that case is still going on. The Penobscot Nation v. Mills, I believe, is the name of the case. And so the event recently was that uh, the Maine Historical Society, they were honoring the Attorney General, Janet Mills, and we were at, at the event. It was a $50 plate fundraiser for the Maine Historical Society. So we lined up out front where people had to walk through and we confronted the Attorney General on this case. The incredible thing is that, you know, these powerful Native activist Wabanaki voices um, were the voices that were, were confronting and challenging um, and speaking the truth to Janet Mills and to other people who were coming out who were upset that we were there. And then the people who are in these like solidarity groups, these ally groups, um, were just being a presence saying, and we're here too. Um, the Attorney General uh, actually came out and confronted the crowd and it was, it was a really interesting moment 
because it started in a very paternalistic way, which has sort of characterized the nature of the relationship. The attorney general came out and said, well, who's read this case? And uh, I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. But one, you know, the, the paper and what the paper says is one thing, how it affects the people on the ground and how we and how we interpret that law and play it out is a whole other piece. So for her to come out and the first response being, well, who read this anyways? Who, who has all the facts on this? You know, it's, it's honoring one type of knowing about this and not honoring another type of knowing about it. Um, you know, listening to the, the leaders who were there, um, you know, this is a taking. And so. Well, she asked that. And then Maria Gerard responded to her and in a really powerful way. And, you know, she is a leader pushing back against this legislation and is super knowledgeable and like really good at asking the right questions. And I think she was the one who said like, on whose behalf is this legislation happening? And I think that that's a really good question, you know? And I think the response was eventually on the, you know, people of the state of Maine's behalf. And I think that right there, like it shattered this whole myth of what was going on because like, I'm a person in the state of Maine, like I'm a citizen here and like, it's not on my behalf, you know? And like everyone there shouted, it's not on my behalf. And I think that like being there, being witness to kind of like this abusive power relationship where she can just like walk out the door and be like, people don't know what they're talking about. One of the things the members of this allied group learned at a protest like this is what their specific role should be. Yeah, we don't take over the microphone. The microphone is for the um, uh, for the voices of the people that have been trying to bring these issues forward all along, all their lives and for generations. For a white ally to grab the microphone and go on at length, like I'm doing right now at your <laughs> invitation, uh, would be inappropriate and presumptuous. And what if white people's voices are the voices that can be heard by the pe by the political leaders in power? That's the paradox. So it's, how do you respond to so that? So, and that's a really good question because um, that goes to the heart of the work we are doing in examining our own privilege and telling our stories within this group and working out our white guild or whatever it is in this ally group so that we are better prepared for those times when it's time to speak up. So, for example, um, letters to the editor. I've written a few myself and other allies have done so. Guest columns, um, comments sections on letters to the editor or articles, um, those can get, and especially when people hide behind aliases, uh, those can get pretty rough. So <laughs> uh, having um, allies show up there and, and speaking the truths that we know is just helpful in terms of numbers. Um, and just in daily conversation, you know, uh, I have opportunities throughout the week to listen to a lot of different people who have different ideas and uh, uh, prejudices. Um, and so I've, I get an opportunity to push back in a, in a way that's historically grounded 
more than it would have been 10, 15 years ago. John says he's had a lot of opportunities to do this now that football season has started. I, I see it a lot popping up in different places is, is the uh, idea of, a, you know, the Indian mascot. I've had conversations about like the Washington Redskins and trying to just tell friends of mine what the term Redskin really means and why that's offensive to people. Phipps, so, yeah, so when Spencer Phipps passed the, the Phipps Proclamation, it was basically offering a bounty on the scalp of Native American people of the Wabanaki. And so there was a different amount based on whether it was a child, a woman, or an adult male. And when the white people were bringing in the scalps of the Native Americans, they were called redskins. The scalp itself was called the redskin. So when, uh, I guess the, like the phrase would be, how many redskins do you have? You know, And then they would get a payout for how many redskins they brought in, which were the scalps of people. It was, it was legalized murder, basically. They think that they're honoring, in a lot of ways, people that, that do these mascots think that they're honoring the, the Native American population, when really, when you look at the, the mascots, like the Cleveland Indian mascot is a caricature, complete caricature of a Native American. You know, you go to the, the Atlanta Braves and they have the tomahawk chop, you know, you know, they do this big tomahawk chop thing. The whole stadium is doing this chant and, you know, doing, doing an arm motion that's supposed to be a tomahawk chop. It's really, you know, and I went to a Braves game 20 years ago and I did it. I had no idea and I did it. And so now I think, oh my God, that was awful, you know. Uh, but I, it's just something that's really ongoing. There's a, I think there's a, there's a one, one school in Maine still left, um, Skowhegan, that, um, there's called the Skowhegan Indians, I guess, and there's a lot of there's a lot of movement to try to have that name changed. There's an awful lot of resistance, but that's something that I think you can talk to friends about. You can talk to people about. It's that time of year where that starts coming up. You know, there are football games and things going on. Halloween is coming up, and there are, you know, children dressing up in stereotypical Indian costumes, and you know that's really it's offensive to the indigenous population. I've I've seen a lot of you know, I've seen a lot of things on Facebook and the Internet about that. So I think those are places where awareness can be raised. You know, it's a starting point. If you can get people to understand the, the racism in that, then maybe people can start to understand some of the greater issues involved in, in what's going on and, and might be more open to, to learning a little bit more about the history. Because the history can knock you down a little bit, you know, emotionally, and uh, it can be hard. And I think I think people see some of that history and they step away from it because it's too, it's too much to handle at times. Part of the function of an ally group is to support each other, to bear the sadness of taking in this history, precisely so that people don't step away, but keep working at it. Because the first step in becoming an ally is coming to terms with this very difficult history. Before we left, Crystal wanted to say one more thing about the word we've been using throughout the meeting. And I just wanted to be really honest that we had, like the word ally is pretty controversial and that there really is no such thing i don't believe as a good or a bad ally it's either like i think some people mistakenly think like if i can just learn the right terminology if i can just read enough books if i can just understand this deeply enough i am i will be a good ally if there's like some goal and then you're always looking for that gold star you know like oh i did it i went to the protest i'm an ally now yes you know um 
but it's more of an, I mean, that's part of the responsibility of having privilege is knowing that it's actually something we have to choose to do every day in every action. And we don't really get to choose if we're being a good ally or not. Um, we get to do our best. We get to be full people with lots of identities and we get to like let Wabanaki people be their full selves and not just one identity and relate to them in lots of different ways. Um, and, and that will mean that sometimes we'll mess up and sometimes we'll get it right. And the important thing is like showing up over and over again and sticking with it and not giving up because it's too hard or because we're tired um, or because we feel guilty or whatever we're feeling. Again, like many people have said, it's not really about us or if we're being a good ally. Um, it's not about that. You know, it's, it can be really hard if you're oppressed, say I'm oppressed in lots of ways and someone who has a lot of privilege over me um, gets to say I'm an ally. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, really? Like, I how or like why and like it's just um it's a label that can be dangerous um because it can if you're an ally it can almost remove a lot of responsibility like crystal saying we we can only show up and try to be our fullest and truest selves um i personally if if a wabanaki community member wants to refer to me as an ally i feel honored uh i try not I, I'm hesitant about using that word also, but that is how we refer to ourselves in a way. But That's what we've been named, right, by the, by the REACH organization. But I, I like what you just said, it's like to try to, to say that I'm an ally is, you know, I'm just trying to be somebody that's uh, educating myself and trying to be supportive in whatever way that I can. But I think it's up to the indigenous people to determine whether I'm an ally or whether we're allies or not. This series on the Maine Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the longest we've ever done on Safe Space Radio. The reason is but the silence around this issue is especially deafening and devastating in its consequence. As you know, Safe Space Radio is intended to be a public health intervention to combat stigma, shame, and silence. And this series has taught me personally so much about silencing that actually silencing is a form of violence itself. Our series has been one attempt to interrupt this silence. There are many other people though who are trying to keep this conversation alive I'd like to encourage you to visit the upstanderproject.org, which has links to important documents about all the elements of the TRC history that we've been covering in these 14 shows, including a new documentary film, First Light. You can see it at a local screening, or you can find it at their website, upstanderproject.org slash firstlight. If you like this show and you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, and the work of breaking silence in order to heal. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Mm -hmm.